0: This is a real-life story of how I quit my awesome job as a clinical pharmacist of 11 years with no real plan of what I'd do next. I had a vague notion that I wanted something different to make a greater impact and to use different parts of my brain. I started talking to friends, then friends of friends, and so on and so forth. Now I'm discovering some brilliant career pivots proving that there is life after clinical pharmacy and I wanted to share my journey with you. This is Career Reconstituted, how these pharmacists turn their job into a dream job. And I'm your host, Monica Mehta. I'm so thrilled to have Dr. Carol Holtzman with us on Career Reconstituted, partly because we bonded over being ID clinical pharmacists in the world of public health, but also because she is a prime example of someone who actively paved her career with sweat and tears. After pharmacy school, Carol completed her PGY-1, then PGY-2 residency in infectious diseases and a master's in science from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She then became a pharmacy professor with an HIV practice in inner city Philly. In 2014, Carol moved to Lesotho, which is a country in Southern Africa with a high prevalence of HIV. While there, she worked with a tuberculosis mobile health initiative, as well as small and large-scale HIV programs, including one with PEPFAR, which is the U.S. president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. When she returned stateside, she became a senior COVID and HIV technical advisor for USAID, which is the United States Agency for International Development. Carol is a mom. She enjoys cooking, reading, and running. Carol, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Is there anything you want to say or ask right off the bat?
1: Um, well, Monica, I, it took me a while to um, understand pharmacy reconstituted, and when I finally got it, it was like this is brilliant. I love it. Um, so great job with the with the title of this podcast.
0: Thank you. Yeah, someone told me the other day they were like, "Well, just looking at your title, I don't know that has anything to do with pharmacy." You know? And I thought, "Well, that's because you're not a pharmacist." <laughs> Um, it's very much like an inside baseball thing for us pharmacists, reconstituting the antibiotic, but yeah, reconstituting the career. You know, I had to be nerdy with the metaphor, but I, I always love the nerd. Bring it on. Thanks. Um, one nerd to another. So speaking of nerdy, um, if you could be any drug, what would you be and why? Oh, I'm
1: awful at these questions. Um I I mean, the, the big one that I just think of off the top of my head is um, probably dolutegravir. Um, it is the the main drug we are using right now for all people living with HIV um, that need treatment globally. It's, it's a great drug. It's first line um, in the U.S. and it's become first line for, for every country in the world, including low and middle income countries, resource limited countries. And um, I think that's It's saved um, millions of lives and it's um, also, you know, about
0: 20 million people are on it right now. So
1: um,
0: I'm going to go with Dolutegravir. You're very on brand with that answer. (laughs) And you mentioned that everyone's on Dolutegravir right now, which is so amazing to me because I always thought of... In terms of global health, that there are a lot of disparities between rich and poor countries, but you're saying that now integrase inhibitors, which is the standard of care in the United States, with either tenofovir emtricitabine and dolutegravir, or abacavir lamivudine and dolutegravir, that's the standard of care in Sub-Saharan Africa as well.
1: Um, we have through the the PEF-FAR, there's a something called the tentative approval process where we. Um, licensed or, or approved a combination with dolotergavir, tenofovir, and lamivudine as a one pill once a day. Um, <clears throat> and these are um, manufactured by generic companies. They're often in India, not always. Um, and I think this is kind of the amazing thing that PEFAR has done is that it has made quality drugs, effective quality drugs, um, accessible, um, to all people living with HIV in the world. Um, and so, yeah, it tries to close the gap, um, in, in this equity issue. Um, you know, so someone in a high income country does not get a better drug, um, for someone else in a low income country. And, um, it, it is, I agree with you amazing to see that. And, great to be part of that.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I also remember there was a a huge paper that came out a couple years ago with um, treatment of cryptococcal meningitis with one dose of amphotericin followed by fluconazole. And in the U.S., I don't know if it was under much discussion because that wasn't the standard of care in the U.S. Um, People were like, how can you get away with one dose? But it was a remarkable improvement for treatment in sub-Saharan Africa. So that's, I guess, like amphotericin is quite expensive and it's intravenous, so it's not reasonable to, to have like a 14-day course in a large part of the world, right? That's correct. And so the, what was recommended was the amphotericin
1: deoxycholate. Um, which, mm-hmm. As you know, we've always known Afrotemfacin as having that, what, um, shake and bake syndrome where it's awful side effects during the infusion process. Um, and you're right. It's, it's a 14 day um, infusion. So it requires someone um, to be in the hospital for, for that long. Um, what is recommended now is the high dose um, um So that is a, Slightly different formulation of, of mm-hmm. amphotericin that has less side effects and um, and it is nice that it is um, a one day treatment so that you know um, patients don't have to stay in the hospital for for fourteen days of treatment
0: yeah, but that is does mean that like at least on that for that disease state there is a disparity between how it's treated in the west and how it's treated in in a lot of the other parts of the world and I'm wondering if What about access to long-acting injectable antiretrovirals like cabotegravir, cabineva? Yeah, no, we are trying to make
1: that accessible, especially um, for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, And I think uh, we're piloting that or rolling it out in select countries, um, and we're trying to work with manufacturers to um, lower the price I think that's important. Um, Make sure that the price is lower. um, And so that um, countries can afford it. um, Because
0: that's too new for it to be available through Indian generics, right? Still on patent? So th- th- I think that's the um,
1: one great thing with the FDA tentative approval process is that we allow for, you know, even some of these brand drugs to, while it's still on patent, to be available for low-middle-income countries. Um, but, you know, there's some legal- legality to it where they can only sell to low-middle-income countries or countries with high burdens of PLHIV um, and, and, and need um, um, access to these quality drugs at a lower price um, so it remains patented in in countries like the u s or you know um, high income countries like you know uh, western europe um and so that's how we have negotiated um, a, a lot of these to get around, um, you know, the, the pricing issues with some of these new um, innovative drugs. I mean, that, you know, the technology is expensive and we want to maintain that so that, you know, um, our pharma companies will continue to be innovative. Um.
0: Yeah, that's that's, you know, a great topic for another podcast. Um. Exactly. No, yeah. No, innovation it's... versus access. Um, well, I could talk to you about HIV all day, but I, I want to get back to your career. So, if you meet someone at a dinner party and they ask you, What do you do? What is your answer to that? I'm going to
1: be very general here and call myself a, a public health specialist.
0: And you don't say public health pharmacist, you say public health specialist. Why is that?
1: Currently in my public health career, um, you know, I, I think the my pharmacy skills and the training I received and knowledge, and especially in infectious diseases, um, definitely help in, in what I do on a day-to-day basis. But um, at this point, I, I don't really, um, you know, go um, into the details of pharmacy. I'm not in... Um, regulatory or, or supply chain, which is like the two main areas that are needed um, when you think of um, what the pharmacist role is in public health. Um, I did more of that with COVID um, in trying to roll out some of the COVID oral antivirals um, for test to treat programs in, in low middle income countries. Um, and then, and, and that was with USAID. And then recently I went back to HIV um, I am a treatment advisor, so um, not necessarily working um, specifically with the drugs and, and which drugs we should roll out. I mean, like I said before, Tiger is doing very well. Um, we, we may be working uh, with some of the, trying to roll out some of the long acting um, um, therapeutics, but for now, a lot of what I do is, um, you know, ensuring continuity of treatment. Um, I look at the country profile, I look at their data. um, I support them in terms of how to get them to the UNAIDS 95, 95, 95 goals, which- Can you say
0: what that is for people who don't know?
1: Yeah, so um, the goal is to, let's say, if you have 100 people um, living with HIV, we wanna make sure that 95 of them know their HIV status. Of those 95 who know their HIV status, 95% um, know their, you know, um, is on ART. So that's it turns out to be 90 people then. Um, And of those 90 people, another 95% of them um are taking their treatment every day and if you were to do a blood test on them they are what we call virally suppressed meaning there's very little um actual viral particles in a drop of blood and and i think that turns out to be something like 86 people then at that point. Um, mm-hmm. and so we, and and that's pretty much our main programming for, for HIV. And so as you can see, it's, it's not necessarily about the drugs. You know, we have a good drug. Um, it's the issues of how do you find people who don't know their status? Do they want to be found? Um, even if they know their status, there are some people who don't want to be on treatment because the stigma of it, they feel like is worse than dying from HIV. Um, And then even if they are on drugs, you know, people cycle in and out of continuing on treatment um, for whatever reasons, like life gets in the way. We're we're talking about people in very difficult situations. They're poor. They have very little resources. They might be in conflict situations. um, There might be a lot of gender inequity a lot of violence and so taking their drugs every day is not on the top of their priority list um, this is probably why or how a lot of these countries um, you know where HIV has become such a problem it's it's a it's a disease of of poverty it's a disease of, of conflict um, and, and dire circumstances
0: mm-hmm So it seems like there are these huge, you know, social, political, economic reasons why it's difficult to get 95% of people on HIV on antiretrovirals every day, 95% of those undetectable. So what are some things that you've done to try to remedy that? Seems like, to me, a daunting problem. Can you give an example of something you've done to move the needle forward?
1: That's a great question. Um, you know, pefar is a big program, and we have tried to bring in innovative solutions. Um, and a lot of it is understanding the context of the country and the epidemic. I mean, it's different for every country. So um, some of the strategies for, you know, finding people is, um, you know, we're trying to roll out index testing. We do that here in the U.S. So it's index testing is if someone if I find out I'm HIV positive, um, we have programs, someone to come interview me and ask me who my sexual partners are, you know, and then, you know, anonymously honestly, I can say, well, you know, so. Um, John Smith, Jane Doe. Um, and they'll ask, well, can I reach out to them? Do you have their phone number? And then they will do that. Um, and they might—they won't name me. They're like, okay, you have been identified as a contact. Can we then come and test you? Now mm-hmm. the resources you need for that person to do the interviewing and the resources to then for them to go and get tests to test them so that we can identify who they are to put them on treatment is part of a big program. Um, And even if they identify someone, we have programs where we have um, case supporters where, um, or or peer counselors, where they will then um, perhaps help them navigate to these health facilities and get them on treatment. Um, And if, for example, if they were supposed to pick up their medicine you know two months later and they miss their appointment then we need a program where we bring in um someone to call them track them ask them hey how are you doing you know i saw you missed your appointment um what can i do what's going on can you know um, we would love for you to come back can i are you in a situation where you can't even come? You know, can I bring your meds to you? So this is all part of a program, and as you can see, it requires human resources, and that's mm-hmm. what a lot of our programs are. It's 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 bringing in people, health providers, to support um, these people living with HIV who who may not be able to have the self efficacy um, to do that. As I said, life gets in the way. You know, a lot of these are poor people who move far away from families to work. They're, they don't have the, the, the social support they need. Um, they are hungry. Um, and so our programs support them, specifically for their HIV. But we know that um, if these people stay healthy, then they're in a much better position to mm-hmm. um, live a quality life and, and support the, their loved ones.
0: This is reminding me of Mountains Beyond Mountains, the Paul Farmer book, where in Haiti, he personally had to like go on this four hour trek to deliver one patient's TB meds. I guess it was a DOTS thing, but um, yeah, you do what you have to do. Um, but that seems like a wonderful goal, the 95, 95, 95. So your work is super cool, but you didn't start off doing this kind of programmatic work. You started off doing something a little more familiar to all of us, which was you were a professor at a pharmacy school. You had an HIV clinic teaching students. How did you, from there, how did you end up in Lesotho? Monica, it's,
1: I love that you mentioned Paul Farmer and Mountains Beyond Mountains. It was that book that made me want to go into global public health, specifically HIV. So Early in my career when that, you know, um, I read that book and, and I was already on my trajectory towards pharmacy and I was like, wow, I, I love what he does. Um, and so that actually made me want to go into HIV as a pharmacist. OK, that was the first step. And then I was like, eh, maybe if I go ever go into global health, that would be great. <laughs> um but that was it um i you know i went through my training i, I loved infectious diseases and then of course i specifically um, was interested in hiv and um you know sometimes life take you in in on roads that you just don't expect either i mean you know, my my husband is an infectious disease doctor we both were interested in global health but you know he was going through Gosh, decades of training, as you may know, with ID docs, and but the same for us, ID pharmacists. It's a lot of like post grad um, training, and you know, we were at some point interested in global health, and even before I went through my PGY two, which is a second year, um, you know, for our audience who, who don't know what that is, um, it's our second year post grad training in um, specializing in, in infectious diseases. We both realized we, um, if we do want to do global public health work, we should get some public health degree. And so that's when we went to the London School of Hygiene um, and and did um, our master's in control of infectious diseases.
0: So you did that between PGY1 and PGY2?
1: That's correct.
0: That's so cool.
1: (laughs) But you you know, just we weren't sure whether we would actually use it. Um, But if anything, we, it
0: would enhance
1: our skills and and our, um, you know, epidemiology for infectious diseases.
0: Well, a friend of mine did that course, too, and he came back to New York, and he was showing me some of the material, and he was studying for the exam. And the exam was like, you have to identify and name genus and species of, like, 10 fleas and ticks. It's like, what?
1: That's correct.
0: It was crazy. (laughs) Right.
1: I remember that we we did a lot of um, tropical diseases that were neglected um, mm-hmm. that most people don't hear of because that's what they are. They're neglected. Like um, some of
0: the- Leishmaniasis. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. River blindness. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, lymphatic filariasis. Um, but Ebola, right? I mean, people have heard of Ebola, but that is um, a lot of the viral hemorrhagic fevers that you're talking
0: mm-hmm.
1: about. Um so yeah, it, it was, it was great to, to go through that course. Um, and then when I came back and did my PGY2, I knew right away that I wanted to do HIV. And you now we got, I got lucky, you know, I was going back to Philadelphia and a academic position opened up for HIV pharmacy. And I wasn't, you know, I didn't go in thinking I wanted to do academia. I wasn't, Sure, I wanted to be a teacher, um, but it was HIV, so so I took it, and I absolutely loved it, Monica. It was I love teach. I learned I learned that I love teaching. Uh, I love the topic HIV, and I got to see patients. I got to support them with their um, HIV regimens, counsel them. And this
0: was before integrase inhibitors, so were you? A lot of patients were on ritonavir, and you had to deal with drug interactions and stuff.
1: Yeah, so I was in this position for five years, and the integrase inhibitors came um, kind of later on, towards the end of, of my five years. Um, it was raltegravir that came out, and everyone loved mm. it, you know, it was, um, because it had very little side effects. Um, you know, fortunately, it was twice a day, but. Um, It was a great go-to drug for a lot of my clients who could not tolerate a lot of the other regimens.
0: Mm -hmm. I feel like HIV pharmacotherapy, it used to be like so important that you had a pharmacist on because of all the adverse drug reactions, the multiple pills per day, so adherence issues, the drug interactions. But now I feel like it's super simple, especially for your patients who are one pill a day. So you don't need to use that pharmacist part of your brain troubleshooting the drug interactions anymore. It's just like one pill a day. It's not like two pills in the morning and two pills at night, one in the afternoon, avoid food with this one, eat with this one. It's so much simpler now. That is correct. And maybe less interesting. I don't know. Oh, I agree. Um, I'll have to say at the end of it,
1: I kind of got bored. It was like, these drugs are so easy and they have, um, and a lot of the integrates have much fewer drug interactions. They were one pill once a day. The pills were getting smaller. Um, and I didn't have clients who were coming in saying I needed, you know, that they were having trouble with their regimen because, you know, that was interesting. I would go through their resistance profile. And, okay, let's see what we can put you on, what's available, you know, and depending on what their complaints were or what um, what challenges they had, I would then, um, you know pulled together a regimen that that worked for them. But you're right. It was
0: much more of a Rubik's Cube back then.
1: (laughs) That's a good way to put it, Monica. Um, And so, exactly. It wasn't about the drug regimen. It wasn't about the drug-drug interactions. It was a lot about the social issues that prevented um, patients from being retained in care and, and staying on treatment. And then I, and I think that's when I realized too, that like, this is where public health programming comes in. Um, I, I wanted a larger impact, you know, I, I think, um, I feel like clients are, they they could do this, you know, we have the technology, we have the drugs for them, but it's it's a lot of the, the social economic um, challenges that I I couldn't address as a pharmacist. So for example, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of my clients, you know, at that point, some of the drugs required food. And I remember asking one one patient's like, well, why aren't you taking it? And it took, I think 10 visits for her to finally trust me enough to say, I don't have food. And mm-hmm. I, she was just embarrassed. She was embarrassed. You, you know, she finally trusted me. To, to kind of be vulnerable to tell me that she did not have food, and when she does not have food, she does not like taking her meds because some food in her stomach really helps with some of the stomach side effects. And and then I'm like, okay, I I can help you uh, by walking you over to the social worker, you know. And that was that was like your my, intervention. Yes, that was my big accomplishment for the day. <laughs> like. but yeah, these are just some of these challenges that, that,
0: you know, that people living with HIV have. So you go from this practice that you're probably like you are loving, but it's in another sense, you're craving something bigger and different and which you ended up having this great opportunity to go somewhere very different Lesotho. What was that like moving from Philly to Lesotho?
1: It it was scary. I'll, I'll admit. Um, I was leaving a very good job. Um, you know, I was starting to publish a bit and, you know, cause that's, that's what happens in academia and, you know.
0: Publish and, or perish.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. And, you know, kind of making a name in the HIV world and, you know, my husband looks at me one night and was like, hey, remember we wanted to travel the world and do global public health work? And I look at him. Yeah, that was 10 years ago <laughs>
0: Maybe before you had mom. two kids.
1: <laughs> right, at that time I had, um, I had a six-month-old and a three-year-old. And Monica, I don't know if you have kids, but it was like, at that moment I'm like, I'm thinking about breastfeeding here and, and, you know, like maintaining this very good job that I have where I can feel fulfilled in my career and still be a mom. And and he's looking at me like, let's move overseas. (laughs) And, um, And I, in the beginning, I'm like, no, no, we're not. I, I, I'm not, I'm not doing this right now. This is a bad time. And, and I think you know, after some conversations I did think about, it and was like, well, this was, this was our passion. This was my passion. This is what I wanted to do. And if I don't go now, I, I think mm-hmm. life will just get ahead of me mm-hmm. and things will just get, I'm going to just going to want to be more and more comfortable. Um, it's not going to be easier. Um, being a parenting never gets easier. I don't know what people ever tell you. Um, and so, um, it's, it's either go now and this is our time and if, and I feel like if I didn't go now, I, I, I just wouldn't ever go. And, and I thought about, you know, I weighed the risks, you know, I, leaving this great job. But um, I was thinking, you know, if, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. We'll come back. We can come back. Um, I'll find something else. But still, it's scary, you know, because you never know what, what if this was your one chance at, at you know, uh, an amazing career and, and you're giving all of that up. And I guess
0: you just do it. And, and so just... you did it. <laughs> yes. Amazing. Um, and then when you got there, tell us a little bit about how you, cause you, you know, as your husband is a, a physician, so physicians are acknowledged universally as you know, diagno they diagnose, they prescribe, it's pretty clear what they do, but pharmacists outside of a few countries, including the United States, it's very unclear as to what their skill set is, what their capabilities are, the licensing thing. Like, for example, when I went to India, when I finished pharmacy school, my cousin, who was 18 years old, owned a pharmacy and people would just come up to him and say, I'm sick. So he would give them a box of Cipro. It's like, oh God, please don't do that. But there's no licensing. There was no Requirement, regulatory requirement for an education to be able to do that. So I go there. I don't know if I could work as a pharmacist. So, what did you do as a pharmacist in Lesotho? Right. I mean, as,
1: as you know, pharmacy, the way it's practiced, can really differ depending on what country you're in and what pharmacists are allowed to do. And, you know, the U.S. Um, is rather advanced um, in terms of clinical pharmacy and um, and our ability to kind of work very closely with physicians and um, supporting them with with drug regimens. Um, there wasn't really much of that in Lesotho. I did try, there was a school of pharmacy um, where we were at in, in Maseru, which is the capital of Lesotho. And, you know, I try to see, well, you know, I knocked on their door and say, here I am, I'm a ph- pharmacist and, I was actually teaching, Um, can you, can I help? Can you, can you use my skills or services? And they're like, yes, we need someone to teach pharmaceutics. I'm like, "Um, (laughs) I took two semesters of pharmaceutics. It's going to require me to like dust off some notes. And it wasn't what I wanted to do. I don't like pharmaceutics. I mean, um, you know, it's kind of fun making your, you know, your, 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 your lotions and triturating. that's all I remember of ph- ph- pharmaceuticals, triturating, because I actually thought that was pretty amazing. Um, the idea of like, you know, using a little bit of powder and, and putting it in whatever um, vehicle and, and then keep on oh, adding. adding this, right, right. <laughs> but that's all I remember. And I'm like, no, no, I, I don't think I can do this. Um, so then I decided, all right, Let's go the full public health rack. Um, in Lesotho, one in four people are infected with HIV. Mm. You know, you can, you know, sometimes you know if you think about it, it's in a room. You know, you can't one, two, three, four. Like this is how many people are infected with HIV.
0: It's the highest prevalence in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Or was? Yep.
1: It's always between one or two with with South Africa, um, and so we. You know, there are a lot of, PEF, pefar was there supporting a lot of their programs. It's a population of 2 million people. Um, and a lot of um, organizations received the funding to, to kind of implement these programs. Um, and so I, I kind of literally knocked on every single NGO door um, and, and kind of gave them my CV and said, here I am. Can I help? I was even willing to volunteer because I realized that, um, you know, I needed some experience, you know, I, you know, have this amazing degree, the PharmD degree. I have like two years of post-grad training. I did I have an MPH, um, but absolutely no, no experience. So I just wanted to get some experience and, and maybe the, you know, more opportunities would open up for me. So I was willing to even to volunteer. Um, and, and there weren't many NGOs in Lesotho. I mean, just, it's a small country um, and, but all it took was one. So um, ICAB, which is um, associated with Columbia University, Mm -hmm. they were implementing PEFAR programs, you know, they they came back and said, well, we do have this one project that we need you to kind of, you know, fix or, (laughs) um, you know, bolster. And it was a mobile health application Program, so they were using an, an application on a phone to support client management. Um, a lot of it was for TV programs. Um, you know, if you had like a someone uh, a Lesotho citizen, we call them Basotho, who were working hmm. in the South Africa mines. A lot of them work in South Africa. If they need to become to come back to Lesotho because um, they were actually infected with TB, so they're repatriated. This program, um, using a mobile application, ensure that they were being tracked, um, they were being connected to another health facility, um, whatever other health problems, and usually HIV, they had a high HIV TB co-infection rate, Mm -hmm. would then also be making sure that they're on their HIV medicines and, and all of that. So it was, it was this mobile health application that at some point I learned to code and build this application, which was, if you ask my husband, I know nothing about technology. I'm the worst, Um, but I figured it out. And, you know, I I think that's one thing great about pharmacists. We just, we learn, we, we see a problem, we, we solve it. And, and, you know, it's not necessarily what, you actually learn the content. I mean, there's always new drugs coming out. You always have to learn new drugs and um, the drugs that you've learned in pharmacy school are probably no longer being used, uh, but it's the skills, right? And and, it's, it's the, it's, I, and I think that's, that's what I um, kind of applied, the um, our problem solving skills and, and just attention to detail. I mean, you, you know, pharmacists have to mm-hmm. pay attention to details.
0: Very meticulous.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: But what I love about this story is that here you are, you have this in-depth knowledge of antiretrovirals and HIV management, and you go to the country with the highest prevalence in the world of HIV. And it's still like challenging for you to find a job. Ultimately, after trying and trying, something falls in your lap and it's for, you know, kind of what you do, HIV and TB. But the main focus is not like pharmacotherapy. The main focus is like technology, using technology, building an app. But you're like, I'm going to do this. And you did what you need to do to help move that along, which speaks to your tenacity. And it also that's like a reoccurring theme among all my guests. is like you have to keep trying until you get something. And then so you do this, you make this technology, and that means you're getting some experience there doing work, doing public health work. So after that was done, it must have been easy for you to get your next gig, right? It well, was
1: definitely one. easier um, because, I mean, first of all, they would have um, ICAP would have kept me on, but they lost they lost their funding. They did not get the follow on award. Um, but in the development world, you know, if there's funding, it's just who gets. The award and so another organization did it was um egg Path, the elizabeth laser pediatric aids foundation and then they often sometimes do sub awards um and so i ended up working with baylor because uh, baylor was a sub award for them and it helped because i was you know at that point they're like okay so she understands the she's actually done some htb programming um they actually you know, within the country, they liked this um, mobile health application that they wanted to continue. Um, I didn't, I didn't continue it with this new um, position with Baylor, you know, so I got, I got a position through them doing pediatric um, care and treatment um, and supporting their programs. Um, But that definitely helped where, you know, after a while, I I knew the country, um, and and they, they wanted someone with my skill set and kind of um, understanding the context.
0: That's great. And how long did you um, do pediatric HIV therapy? So two
1: years there, um, and then the deputy PEPFAR coordinator position opened up at the U.S. Embassy. So that's full on work with the U.S. government. And I was like, I'll give it a shot. I I wasn't expecting to get it, to be honest, Monica. I thought you know there were you know it was it was a pretty big deal, and and people who have worked years in public health that, you know, would get positions like that. And, you know, while I had, you know, a, a doctor, of pharmacy degree, I definitely had the technical knowledge, but again, I did not have like the public health programming experience that was probably needed for, for this position. I ended up getting the position, which I'm so grateful for.
0: And that was um, with USAID or with the State Department? That was
1: with the State Department. Okay. Um, and, and I think part of it was, again, because I, at that time, had been working in Lesotho for about two and a half years. They, they really wanted, or, or like the fact that someone understood, um, you know, Lesotho in, in the terms of its context. A lot, a lot of times, you know, people coming into new um, countries to work, um, it takes about a year to, to fully understand the culture um, and, and how to work with um, the, the locals. And so I think that gave me um, the advantage.
0: And what was it like living there with two kids? Were they, did you have access to childcare and did you have like a nice place you were staying in or was it very rural and minimalistic like people envision?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, we did live in the capital. Um, and so there were, you know, brick and mortar houses, not, not mud huts or anything like that. Um, There was a big difference between when, you know, so we first came through with Baylor um, through my husband's job and, you know, housing was, it was humble. I'll just say that. And um, I I did see the difference when I moved with the U S government, there was a lot more support, um, you know, Where I almost was like, "How did we do this? How do we move? You know, halfway across the world, all on our own, without this kind of support?" Um, But you know, we we figured it out. We kind of sold everything and packed all our life possessions into sixteen pieces of checked luggage. (laughs) That was it. Um, You know, it's it wasn't about the things. That, that we needed. Um, one thing nice about being in Lesotho is we had a lot of help. Um, you know, it was, I had a full-time nanny who was able to like be with my kids. Um, so I think that was really helpful, especially for yeah. someone with, with young kids. So, um, it, it wasn't all struggle and, and I won't, you know, play the Oh, I sacrificed so much to live in a country like Lesotho. Um, there were there were definitely good things about it too, um, especially you know all the extra help you get um, with with young kids.
0: And what a great experience for your kids too! Uh, they
1: really loved it there.
0: Yeah. And um, after how many years did you return stateside? So we were there
1: for close to seven years and then um, hmm. came back to the U.S. Um, we kind of knew that at some point we would have to come back um, when our kids got a bit older and, you know, going beyond um, primary schooling. You know, the city was, like I said, it was just very small. The, the American International School was very small and they, we needed something more for our kids. So it was either go to a um, a bigger African city, or it didn't even have to be in Africa, but just a big enough city that there was, um, you know, a, a bigger school or, or come back to the States. And, you know, we, we ended up coming back to the States more so and, um, because, you know, where my husband was applying. And, and I keep on saying this, um, that, you know, it's, it's my husband leading for us. That was just the decision we made as our family. I think every family is different, you know, with mm-hmm. two people um, with careers, uh, Monica, you understand, you, 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 know, you have a, an amazing career. Your husband does too. And and when you have a family, you're like, or even just the two of you, you know, um, you're going to have to compromise and figure yeah. out who, who gets to, who, who's going to be the one following or, or, or vice right. versa. Um, and that was just, you know, the decision we made, um, as a family. Um,
0: yeah, well, I live in, <clears throat> Washington, D.C. We moved here in August from New York City um, because my husband had a job opportunity to work in a think tank here. And I was nudging him to do it because I wanted to pivot out of hospital pharmacy and into government or non-governmental organization to do humanitarian work. And we do have a son who's five. And there are great public schools here, too, um, <clears throat> where, you know, we would have a very costly private school in New York City. So I think... <clears throat> I get what you're saying. You have to think about each person individually and as a family to to see what's best for everyone in aggregate. Um, yeah. And it sounds like you, you know, it's so nice that your husband, you and your husband are both like global health infectious disease. So there's like a synergism between your work. Like what if you were a, um, I don't know, firefighter. (laughs) So, um, that may not have worked out. So I think your career paths were in parallel. So that was, that's what helped all the flow for you.
1: Um, I, I don't know how others do it right when, when the careers don't align very well, you know, but I, I feel like every family figures it out. Um, and, you know, while we, you know, figured out that he would look for the job and then, you know, it's just too hard for both of us to try to like get some kind of match going. Right. It's not like mm-hmm. you know, medical residency matching here mm-hmm. uh, where there's that kind of system. So we're, I was, you know, Allowing him to kind of look for his job, and so he he got a position um, in Boston here, and then I was like, "All right, fine, we'll we'll move to Boston, and then I'll figure something out." But Monica, it's still scary, you know. I was mm-hmm. I loved my job in Lesotho. I loved, um, I
0: loved what I was doing. I Sounds loved... like a perfect job for you.
1: <laughs> it was. It was amazing. Um, so I wasn't sure what was going to happen. You know, was would I be able to get? something similar. And, you know, there are a bunch of public health NGOs here in Boston, Um, you
0: know, there's... You're so qualified at this point. You have done it all. You got a PharmD, you did two years of residency, you did London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, you worked in, you know, the country with the highest prevalence of HIV in the world for six years doing like hands-on work. I feel like when you came to Boston, you should have been like, who wants me? Let me negotiate. I can get all of you. You know, I feel like you were perfect candidate for any job. Was it like that? Could was it easy to get your next job and was it perfect for you or was it still challenging?
1: It was still very challenging, I must admit, because, you know, you know, you you look at the the job market and you look at what positions were open. Okay, so there were some, you know, there are public health positions opening, but is it the one that you want? Right. It wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to continue with HIV and a lot of the HIV programming, you know, was still with the U.S. government and um, a lot of the the major NGOs are in Washington, D.C., so I'm like, oh, well, in Boston, it's going to be a problem. Um, and it was, you know, I was trying to apply for many jobs through USAID. Um, and I was not getting any callbacks. Um,
0: That's so shocking to me.
1: (laughs) It's hard. I mean, it's, it's a big, I mean, first of all, the, it's slow. So, you -hmm. know, you can be waiting for a while. Um, but I got one interview and I was not qualified for it. It was it was a very um, it was a very senior position, um, but whatever, I'm like, all right, let me just interview." Um, and it was someone on that interview panel who then called me back and say, "Hey, you didn't get this job, but we actually need someone for COVID. Um, it's temporary. It's nothing permanent would you be interested in? I think because, you know, because it's not permanent, they had a lot of trouble getting people, you know, Mm. for for positions like this. And I'm like, yeah, I'll do anything. Um, You know, part of it is, you know, again, I I have this mentality is like, try it out. If it doesn't work out, it's fine. It's temporary, you know, but you never know you open one door, other doors may open. Right. That's how that's just kind of, you know, how I, that's a good pearl, you know, so I took on this COVID position, and in the meantime, I was continuing to apply for USA Jobs. And by that time, people started to like know me and they knew my work. You know, I was doing some mini presentations here and there about the status of COVID. And so,
0: you wrote a really great paper on how COVID affected management of HIV throughout the world.
1: Exactly. Um, We were trying to leverage. you know, the, the PEFAR platform for, for COVID um, implementation, which was um, great to see that we were able to use, you know, the, the systems that PEFAR has um, built up for that. Um, but yeah, it, and so one thing led to another, a door opened where I was, you know, applying for another job. And since people kind of knew me and they knew my work, um, I, I was able to get a permanent position at, at USAID. Going back to HIV, which is which is what I really wanted to do, um, but in many ways, you know, COVID doesn't really leave you. And, and now I'm doing some work with global health security, um, which I think is important. Um, you know, especially when we realize that you know we live in, in an era of globalization and diseases can spread very very quickly. Um,
0: and Pepfar wasn't reauthorized, right? But must, no, it's going to be, it's got to be. Not
1: yet. We're all keeping our fingers crossed. Um, um, the, the Global Health um, Security and Diplomacy um, Bureau is really working hard to making sure that it gets reauthorized.
0: So what's uh, next for you? What does the future hold?
1: It's a great question. I, I don't know. I, I think um, I'm ha- very happy what I'm doing now. Um I, I imagine that as health changes, I think as we reach um, epidemic control for a lot HIV epidemic control for a lot of countries, um, something else may come up, and you know I, I might I might jump over to to some other health priority. But I'm excited, you know it's it's you know I think these several years have made me realize that, um, don't be afraid to just take these risks and, and, you know, um, if a door opens up, you know, go through and see what else opens up for you.
0: That's great advice. Um, what else, what other advice do you have for pharmacists who want to go into global health?
1: I'd say if that is really what you want to do, um, don't be afraid to, um, start small. Um, sometimes you have to, um, I think, you know, pharmacists has gone through so much training and you guys, we put in a lot of hard work and it's hard not to be like paid for it and recognized for it. Right. And so I think if you want to kind of start a new career, you're going to have to um, be okay with maybe taking a lower paid position for a time being um, and, and kind of working your way up again. But I think when people realize that, you know, you have the skill set and you have different experiences that you can bring to the public health space, you will then be recognized for it. But it may not happen, um, you know, for in the first one or two years, you know. Um, I think I think that's important. Um, and if you really want to, again, um, if you have trouble, you know, looking, you know, finding some paid positions, you know, looking into fellowships or, or other training programs, I um, I'm with USAID, but I'll be honest, in the beginning when I wanted to get into the public health space, I tried to apply for CDC's the um, EIS program, the Epidemic yes. Intelligence Service. So I'll tell you this, Monica, I applied twice and was refused twice. Like The first time I applied, this was before I left for Lesotho, I didn't even get an interview. The second time I applied, this was a- actually I applied after I came back from the suit too. and I'm thinking, all right, you know, like maybe this will help me get into CDC, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, because yeah, I was applying to all these jobs, I wasn't getting anything, so I was like, all right, I'm willing to go back and just do a fellowship mm-hmm. and apply again to EIS, got the interviewed, but did not get selected. So you know, <laughs> it's fine, it you know, but I you know you try it. Um, and yeah. I have a good job at USA now and it's, it's, it's worked out fine. Well, thank you but for I sharing was... that
0: because I think, you know, you see someone doing the kind of work that you do and you just feel like, wow, you know, she's so lucky. She's so like smart. She, nothing can stand in her way. But then you tell stories like that and you realize, wait, I'm not alone because me, per- now I'm talking about me personally, not like theoretically. I've gotten rejection letters for jobs that I thought I would be so perfect. and you know, I, I was stunned by that, but it, it hasn't, it, you know, it happens to all of us and it's just part of the process. And we just have to stay on target and keep going.
1: Oh, exactly. Monica. Um, yeah. You mean- we, you know, people never talk about their rejections, right. And, and our failures. Right. Um, but I, you know, Monica, I would encourage you to just keep at it. Something will open up, you know, Yeah. I, I, you know, I think the persistence, um, will will pay off and and you'll, you'll, you'll figure it out. And I mean, and if not, I'm loving this podcast. So, you know, maybe, maybe it turns into
0: this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, No, I'm definitely not suffering and I'm having a blast meeting people like you. Um, Gosh, thank you so much, Carol, for sharing your story with us. Your super cool career path, you know, paving the way, your tenacity and um, sharing us all the cool work that you're doing with HIV. No, thank
1: you so much for having me, Monica, and considering me.
0: Of course. Thank you for listening to Career Reconstituted. How These Pharmacists Turn Their Job Into a Dream Job. My name is Monica Metta. To our listeners, thank you for spending your hour with us in a world where time is a rare commodity. If you have any comments, questions, or recommendations for interviewees, please get in touch via Spotify in the episode notes page or on Instagram. Look for our handle, career underscore reconstituted. And if you like the show, please subscribe or leave a rating. Until next time, bye friends.